Will you join with me and pray as we come to the Word of God? Our Lord God, we thank you that your Word is living and active. Uh, Lord, that it is able to pierce down right into the division of bone and marrow, into the very being of who we are. And we ask that today, through your Word, that you would pierce into our hearts, that you would make us understand the truth of your Word, but see Jesus in the midst of it. We do not see that we need to achieve things to be accepted by you, but Lord, help us to see that you have done all that is required and that through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, we might find acceptance through you, our God, and our lives transformed by your power. We ask that today in his name. Amen. Well, you may or may not be familiar with Greek mythology. I know my son... Uh, loves Greek mythology. And uh, one of the myths uh, is the myth of Sisyphus. And basically, Sisyphus was a bad person, uh, one of the uh, part of the pantheon of Greek gods. And so he was uh, sentenced to hell. And in hell, his responsibility was to push a giant boulder up a hill. But the problem with this giant boulder is it was so heavy that every day he'd push it up as high as he could, trying to get to the top of the hill. And if he made it, of course, he might escape. Uh, but then the, the heaviness of the boulder would crush him and pull him down every day. And so that the next day he would attempt it again, over and over again for all eternity. That was the curse and the myth of Sisyphus. Now, one of the problems for you and I when it comes to our achievements in life is that we begin to mount them up. You know, that we've been a good person, that we've done certain good things in our lives. Perhaps we've uh, excelled in our career. Perhaps we've excelled in our personal life. We've made a lot of money. Perhaps we've got great investments, although they're we're worried about those now, perhaps with rising interest rates, whatever they are. And we amount this great, like a great boulder, these achievements in our life, and we try to push them to the top of the hill, thinking that once we've got enough, we will have finally made it. A bit like Sisyphus, pushing them up the hill. And then many of us find that the weight of our achievements tends to crush us with its expectations. Because the problem with achievement is you have to maintain it. Did you know that often the most successful people, the people who are the highest achievers in the world, are the most self-conscious and anxious often and protective of their feats. This is why elite sports people often struggle with major depression when they retire because they don't know what to do with themselves because they don't know who they are anymore. There is a great danger to achievement. That's what I want to talk to you about today, the danger of achievement as we look at someone who had achieved great things, Nebuchadnezzar, and how it ended up crushing him with its weight. So there's three aspects to this I want to speak to you about today. The first is the pride that comes with achievement. The second is the pride that comes with religious achievement. We'll have a look at that from a different perspective. And thirdly, the meekness of God that humbles the pride of achievement. So the pride of achievement. What do we see from King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, what you see in verse 30, this King Nebuchadnezzar, and if you may 
Uh, remember, we're going through the book of Daniel. We're up to chapter 4. We've been looking at King Nebuchadnezzar for a few weeks now because he was the greatest king the world had ever seen at that time. And he kind of reveals that to us a little bit in verse 30. He's you know, speaking to himself, perhaps. He might have some members of his royal court around him. But he's standing on the roof of his royal palace overlooking his kingdom. And this is what he says. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. So Babylon was the jewel in the crown of this emperor, King Nebuchadnezzar, who ruled over the Babylonian Empire in 600 BC. And he's looking out over everything that he's done, all of his achievements in life, and he is filled with pride. He loves himself. He is filled with pride. Listen to this, the self-credit I have built. He did it. Listen to the self-exaltation by my mighty power. Listen to the self-glorification for the glory of my majesty. The Bible tells us that pride comes before a fall. So we should be waiting with anticipation what is going to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is not just some story, by the way. This is rooted in history. Not, even in the, not just in the biblical record, but in the records from ancient Babylon. It speaks of this same king losing his mind for about seven years. And some uh, Jewish mystic apparently helped him recover. That's what the uh, Babylonian record holds. So this is uh, a story that is rooted in history. This really happened. But it, the reason why it happened, we get revealed in our text today. So there is a prideful root which sits underneath this achievement that King Nebuchadnezzar says that he has done himself. That is, he has, with great power, built a kingdom for himself, built a city for himself, but he has not recognized that he is under the authority of God. He has, he has used great power. He has excelled in great power, and yet he has done it without recognizing the authority of God above him. The prideful root underneath it says he looks at all his achievements. Look at this great city. You know, look at what I've done. Look at the residence for my majesty. Here, but he doesn't see that everything that he has has come from God. And notice that he does it all for who? For himself. He wants everyone to serve him. He wants everything to be for his sake. He does not care about the people. They are supposed to be there for him. Now, this is very interesting because if you've been following through the past few weeks in the book of Daniel, you'll realize that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was not unaware of God. Though he was you know, of a different uh, r religious species, if you will, he was Babylonian. So he believed in the Babylonian gods and kind of the chief Babylonian god was Bel, which he named his son after. And also uh, his friend Daniel got a, renamed after this god Bel. But he had it revealed to him that there was a god above the gods of Babylon, the god of Israel, the God, Yahweh. And he realized that this God was the, the greatest of all gods. So he had an intellectual awareness that there is a God and that that God is most powerful. He had an intellectual awareness, yet for some reason he had become a functional atheist. 
Think about it. King Nebuchadnezzar, just in the previous chapter, had realized that God is, that the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, is the greatest God. We even see at the beginning of chapter 4, it says, It seems to me, so it seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So King Nebuchadnezzar knows that there is a higher God in his head, but in his heart and in his life, he's become an atheist. It's all about him. He is a functional atheist in his attitude. What is a functional atheist, you might ask me? This is my definition. A a functional atheist accredits their own achievements or failures to achieve those achievements entirely to themselves. Let me say that again. A functional atheist accredits their own achievements or failures entirely to themselves. It's got nothing to do with God and it's all about me. You know, it's funny, I actually, uh, as I was praying this morning, I had to repent to God for my own functional atheism because I had taken credit for something that I knew that God had done for me earlier in the week and I was telling people how good I was. Isn't it interesting how easily it can slip into our hearts? Functional atheism. This is a dangerous thing because you can have an awareness that God is God in your head, but how you live your life shows the attitude of your heart. Interestingly, God has a much better plan for human leaders and their achievements. You see, achievement without God, as we see uh, with the life of Nebuchadnezzar, fills us with pride and self-exaltation. And actually, the natural result of Nebuchadnezzar's attitude uh, because of his achievements would lead him to become beastly, beastly in the way that he treated others. In fact, it's actually referred to earlier in the chapter that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't treating people in his kingdom rightly. He wasn't taking care of the poor and the vulnerable. He wasn't living as he ought to. And he was warned about this earlier that he would lose his kingdom lest he repented. So this was very clear. This was very clear for him and yet he ignored it. He was heading down a beastly path and so what did God do when he spoke of his his great pride and all the things that he'd done? God turned him into a beast. You see, when you lust after your own glory and achievement, it turns you into a beastly person who treats others without respect. You take advantage of other people. If your whole life is about you making the most of it and getting the best achievement that you can out of life, you will step on everyone else to get to the top. If you're not doing it in practice, you're doing it in your heart. You're stepping on others to get to the top. That is the way we work when it is all about us and our achievements. And that was the path that Nebuchadnezzar was on. And so God gave him that. God allowed him to become like a beast because that was the way that he was going. You see, the problem with living our lives for our own achievement is rather than setting us free, these achievements become burdens that weigh us down. You know, the, the more successful you are, the more the fear of failure will cripple you. 
See, this pride of achievement is devastating. It creates a house of cards. On the one side of the house, on the card is pride, on the other side is the fear of failure. And so the higher that this house of cards of achievement is built, the greater the fear you have that it will fall. What else would produce our self-centered ways in our lives? Now, in uh, most places in the world, your life's identity is built on your personal achievements. That is, if you've done certain things in your life, you can look at yourself in the mirror and go, I've done well with myself. I'm a good person. And if you haven't met those expectations, whether they've been your own or they've been imposed on you by society or family or something like that, you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, I am a failure. Both of those attitudes, whether you think you're great or you think you're a failure, are rooted in an idol of achievement. That makes me who I am. You know, whether you're a student and you're getting top grades, or whether that's been imposed by yourself or your parents, that makes you who you are, does it? Perhaps you are in a promising career and you're trying to work your way to the top. You know, you, you might even be, you know, studying a PhD or something. You're working hard to get to the top of your field. And if you make it, if that paper gets published, if you're recorded in that journal, then you would have really made it. You'll be that person who's hit the top. That makes you who you are. Or perhaps you've set your sights on just settling down with a family. And then you're having children. And then those children loving you and you, you're having a great uh, family environment. And, but if your children misbehave, You'll be crushed by disappointment at your own personal failure at not having raised the children that you ought. You see, any achievement that you set your sights on, you start to build yourself a house of cards. One side is fear of failure. On the other side is pride. It is utterly dangerous. And our culture has been perpetuating this for the last 250 years or longer. Have you noticed in the West, we have set our sights, particularly the last century, on seeking happiness from achievement. That's all we want. We want to encourage our children to do the best, be the best that they can. We want to encourage that in our education system, in everything we have. We want people to achieve their best. You can feel it coming through the media. You can feel it even in your own heart. And yet, you know what? We have more anxiety and depression upon us than before. Why is that? It's like we're chasing after achievement and happiness on the one hand, and yet we're experiencing the thing that we desire most least. What is wrong? Something is wrong with this desire for achievement. It doesn't pay out. It has diminishing returns upon it. The pride of achievement will not amount to your everlasting happiness. It will crush you in one way or another, in this life or the next. So I've looked at the pride of achievement. I want to now turn to the pride of religious achievement. And this isn't in the text. Let me be, on, let me be straight with you. It's, it's not in the text today. Uh, there's nothing in there that speaks to the pride of religious achievement because we know that you know, King Nebuchadnezzar was essentially acting like an atheist. He was saying, I don't care about God. Though I know of him, I'm living like it's all about me. 
and he's about to have his life come crushing down through God's judgment. But when we get to the New Testament, it's revealed very strongly that there is another type of person that opposes God through achievement. And it's not the atheist. And it's interesting because you often think that, you know, you come to church and all they do is bag out the atheists. Well, that's not true today uh, because, as it turns out, the people who hated Jesus and most and the people whom Jesus spoke out against most were those who were filled with pride for their religious achievement. So I've got a little uh, story to tell, a little parable. And it goes like this. Uh, I want you to imagine... Uh, that there's, uh, there's three people. The first guy's name is Barry. Now, Barry dies, and unfortunately, he goes to hell. I'm sorry if your name's Barry, but this isn't about you, perhaps. Um, so this person, when they go to hell, they, obviously they've realised that something bad has happened, and they become very, very angry. Barry becomes so angry that he decides to write a letter of complaint to the complaints department in hell. And, of course, uh, in his letter, he wants to list off all the achievements that he has made in his life. You know, Barry's had a good job, a successful career even. He's worked hard, he's saved well, and he retired early, would you believe it? Even gave some money to his kids before he passed. He was healthy, at least until the end, uh, fairly wealthy and wise, as the saying goes. Barry was a respected member of society by the people that he knew, and yet he is angry. Why? Because his achievements are not recognised down here. Doesn't the management realise who he is? There should be at least a plaque on the wall or something down here. And Barry is so angry that he busies himself writing an exhaustive complaint to the complaints department about how good he is and how he deserves a bit more recognition down here. He wants to list every detail of his life, all that he's done from as early as he can remember about how good he is. He realises as well that this has been a perpetual problem because even when he was on earth, not everyone recognised how good he was. And so that he files that as another complaint. This desire for recognition for all his achievement makes Barry perpetually angrier and the complaints go on and on in the letter that he's writing and on and on and on and on for all eternity. That's the first person we meet. second person we meet uh, is another man and his name is George. He's passed to the other side. He's died, he's passed the other side. Uh, George is pretty well dressed actually. He's confident. He's a little nervous on the inside, but he's on his way up to the pearly gates and he's about to meet St. Peter. Now, I just a just, uh, point of clarification before I continue on the story. This is not the exact gospel truth for what exactly happened. It's a parable, okay? So don't quote me on all this stuff. It's supposed to give you meaning at the end just for those that are filing this away for later thought. All right, so George is on his way up, he's up to the pearly gates and he's there to meet St. Peter to see if he can get in to heaven. He's pretty confident, a little bit nervous, but he thinks he's got it in the bag, as they say. So he's at the pearly gates, St. Peter's there, he's sort of explaining to him, you know, I should be, and he's actually written it, all, written it all out in these documents, all his personal achievements. And actually, uh, it turns out that George was friends with Barry. They worked together and had very similar lives. So, you know, they both had good jobs. They're both fairly healthy, wealthy and wise. They both, you know, passed on a bit of money to their kids. They'd 
for all extensive purposes, at least according to them, they were good people. And so uh, George sort of hands over this long, extensive list of all his personal achievements to St. Peter. And St. Peter carefully reads through every line, uh, gets to the end, gets to the last page and sort of just shakes his head. Thankfully, uh, George was actually fairly well prepared. And Uh, It's the next document where he'd put most of his effort. You see, the second set of papers that George had is is a fair bit longer than the first. And he knew that Barry uh, really didn't have uh, these kind of aces up his sleeve when it came to getting into the pearly gates. But see, George did. You see, he had a list of his religious achievements stored up. He had a list of all the things that he had done personally for God. Listen to this. He was baptized. He was confirmed. He took communion most weeks when he attended church. You know, some years it was just Christmas and Easter, but he made the most of it. He gave money to the church and to the poor. He was actually a much better person than Barry was, and George knew that he was more religious, at least on the outside, than most of the people at his church. He gave more, he prayed better, he could talk about religious matters with more accuracy than most people he knew. And he made sure he only hung around people who knew less than him too. You see, George was a religious achiever. And so George, of course, having made this extensive list, I mean, this was like papers upon papers. It had section one, section two, up to section 55. They were all there. Everything he'd ever done for God. And so he hands it to St. Peter And St. Peter's a very meticulous man. He sort of worked his way through every uh, line in this um, religious achievements list. Peter, again, gets to the end, having looked carefully over the paperwork, making sure that every part had been weighed and measured. And he shakes his head again. Peter finally says to George, was there anything else? And uh, George replies, but I worked so hard. I worked so hard, especially at the religious parts. But as George heads to the dark place, he can actually see Barry. And Barry is still writing his letter of complaint. And George thinks, maybe I need to write a letter too. Okay, so we've covered the first couple of people. There's a third person. A third person, and her name is Jenny. Jenny's passed on to the other side as well. She wasn't particularly healthy, wealthy or wise, as it turns out. But Jenny, though she probably hasn't had the best life, if, if you were to compare it to Barry and George, she's actually whistling on her way up to the pearly gates. She's happy. She's extremely happy. She's even joyful. She's sort of got a skip in her step, as it were. She doesn't have much with her. She's not particularly well-dressed, as it seems. And she's actually only got a small piece, like a scrap of paper, So she arrives at the pearly gates and this piece of paper actually falls out of her hand. This piece of paper only had two words on it. And in fact, it's not just words, but a name. And the name is Jesus Christ. Because Jenny sees someone else there. It's not Peter waiting for, but it's him. It's a man there with scars on his hands and his arms wide open. And he embraces her and she sees him with tears of joy for the first time face to face. You see, Barry and George look on her from far, far away and they're very confused. 
Why did he come to meet her? And they say her with disdain. They both knew her too. Jenny had worked in the same company as Barry and George. And they both disliked her because she was too happy. Her life wasn't that great and yet she still had a skip in her step. She died young and yet she still had a skip in her step. You see, George has begun working on his own complaint letter and he adds Jenny being up there to his list. Now my question for you this morning is if there's only one name that you need to be up there, why do you spend your life trying to make a big list of achievements that won't get you anywhere? The great danger for the Christian, the great danger for the religious person is that you will spend your whole life trying to rack up achievements to get you in and yet they will do nothing. Why? Because there's only one name under heaven on which man can be saved. What is that name? That name is Jesus Christ. Because there's only one who had a life worthy of heaven. And that is Jesus Christ himself. So there is a great danger to pride when it comes to the achievements that we have in life. But I tell you, there is a greater danger to the religious person. The person who perhaps has been to church much of their life, maybe on and off. The person who has a list of religious achievements that they want to put before God and yet the Bible says no one is righteous, no, not one. What is the proof of this? What is the proof that you can't get into heaven with your list of religious achievements? What is the great proof, you ask me, that you know, you can't get in. Maybe you just need one more communion to get in. Maybe you just need to do one more good deed to get in. What's the proof that you can't get in with all your good deeds? I tell you, the proof is that God himself died on a cross as a payment for sin. Nothing else would do it. Nothing else would take away the sins on our lives. God himself had to step down as a perfect offering for us and in our place. No one else had followed God's law perfectly. How did Jesus summarize the law? Love your God, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That is God's standard. Have we achieved that? Have we done that in every aspect of our lives, in thought, in word and in action? No human being can stand before God and say, I have done it, except for the one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who stood before God on a cross taking the punishment for sin and he could say with his own mouth the words, it is finished. So let this be a warning to those of us who call ourselves Christian. Don't fill your life trying to achieve things to get in or to make up for past sins by doing better. Because there is one name. There is one name that will grant you access. And so if you live your life for that one name, you will be like someone who has a skip in their step. 
And if you live your life like you need a bigger list to earn your way in, you will be weighed down and crushed by it. Or worse, you will be proud and condescending to everyone else. And when you get there, you realize that it was all for nothing. So let me tell you this. We have looked at the pride of achievement. We've looked at the pride of religious achievement. But thirdly and finally, I want to tell you about the meekness of God that humbles the pride of achievement. Have you ever wondered why at the beginning of the New Testament, there's four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they all tell us about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. There's four whole books. They don't just tell us doctrine, that is, Christ died for sinners. They don't just tell us that through faith in Jesus, you can be saved. He who was crucified and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. It's not just the paragraph. It's not just the nutshell. There's four books that pretty much tell the same thing from different perspectives. Why is there so much there? Because God wants to win our hearts with the person and the work of Jesus Christ because he is a real person. He's not just a doctrine, an abstract idea. That's why the Bible is, and the person of Jesus Christ is revealed to us in stories rooted in history, in doctrine rooted in actual truth, in the gospel rooted in a person, Jesus Christ. He wants to woo our hearts with his person, not motivate you with a stick. All that I've told you so far is truth-telling. Let me, let me be straight with you again. It's truth-telling. All of this will happen. It says it at the beginning of our, our um, scripture today. All this, verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything in the Bible is true. Everything that it says will happen, will happen. All the things that it foretold that would happen in the life of Jesus or everything since then has happened. Nothing in there that has been foretold will not happen. The Bible is authoritative and true. Look it up. But the way that God wants to woo our hearts, to move us out of our dangerous achievements, is through his own person, that we would actually fall in love with him. And the way that he does that is through a very unusual means, the meekness of Jesus. See, unlike King Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus set himself under the authority of God the Father. We read this in John 5.30. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen to the humility of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus. He's willing to submit himself, though he can, you know, calm the storm with a word, though he can raise the dead by speaking, though he spoke the world into existence by his very mouth, is willing to submit himself to God the Father. He is utterly different to King Nebuchadnezzar. His meekness is beyond comparison. Listen to the achievement of Jesus and then the recognition that he has. Jesus, uh, in, in an event that happened in John chapter 11, he sort of, one of his good friends, Lazarus, had been in a tomb for three days. 
and everyone around him is crying. Jesus himself is weeping over the death of his friend. In fact, if you really read the text, Jesus is angry over the death of his friend. He's sort of going through the stages of grief himself. And yet Jesus knows that this will not end up in death. And so we catch it in verse 41, what happens when Jesus is about to raise this man from the dead. It says, verse 41, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Do you notice that before Jesus does something unparalleled in human history, calling someone three days dead out of the grave to get up out of the grave and to live, He gives glory to God the Father. Notice the meekness of Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus, though he could have demanded the service and the servanthood of all of humanity before him, Jesus sat down on the night before he was crucified and washed the feet of his disciples, taking the form of a servant. He washed their feet, taking the form of the lowest servant in the first century household, washing the dirt and the grime and whatever else off the feet of his disciples. And he says, I've given you an example. He says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The highest person became the lowest servant to demonstrate his great meekness towards us. This meekness of Jesus can crush our idols of achievement. Did you know that if you are living your life for your own achievements, that is what you worship? That is what you worship. Whatever it is that you're living your life for, That is what you worship. In the movie Rocky, Adrian is uh, speaking to Rocky and saying, you know, like, why are you so intent on having this boxing match? And and Rocky says, I need to finish the fight in order that people won't think that I'm a bum. I need to go the distance so that I'll know that I'm not a bum. Do you think in your own heart, in your own life, that you need to achieve something so that you'll know or the people that are around you will know that you're not a failure, that you've made it? You need to prove to yourself. You need to prove to other people to do something that you've made it in life, that you're not a bum. Like Rocky had to prove himself on the stage. And yet, Jesus says there's another way. You see, the problem is when we, have our, we worship our achievement, that becomes our identity. That becomes who we are. But God says there's another way. His identity and verdict came when the Son of God went to die on the cross personally for you so that the achievements of Christ and His perfection could be yours. 
and he offers that freely to us as a gift. The true Christian is the person that says, there is no religious or other achievement that I can make that God will accept. For in myself, all my motivations are, no matter how good their appearance, rooted in pride. All that God will accept, all that God will accept is when achievement is recognized under Him, when power is used under God's authority, and that servanthood is required from the one who would make himself servant of all. And Christ gave it all because he had it all. And in absolute meekness, he laid it all down for the glory of God the Father. So what does this mean for you and I today? What does this mean for us personally? It means that Jesus calls us to surrender all of our achievements and our ambitions and lay them at the foot of the cross. You cannot get Jesus if you have something else sitting higher than him. I want to be really clear with that this morning. If you are aiming at something else in the positive sense or in the negative Like Rocky, you've got to prove yourself that you're not a failure if you get this thing. That is the thing that you worship. If that is in front of Christ, then you don't get Christ. And so the invitation from Jesus is to lay it down. Surrender it before Him, no matter what place you are in life. Even in your heart right now, lay it at the foot of the cross and leave it there. And then lift up your sights, gaze upon him in all his meek glory and have your heart melted by the barbed crown on his head. Have your heart melted by his arms spread in love, nailed on that cross in meekness that he would be humiliated for for our heart to be his. Consider the embrace that you anticipate in heaven of the one crucified, the risen saviour with scars on his hands and side, things that he has picked up from taking the consequence of our failed achievements. Lay it all down. Lay it all down before him. Lay it all down the years of seeking achievement, all the failures that you might have and Remember the words of him on the cross who said, it is finished. Hear his voice, and I'll finish with this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you willingly, you willingly put yourself in our place for people who were filled with pride and fear. People like me, people like those listening to these words. Lord, you did it for us. And I ask that the truth of this would now take impact and root in our hearts, that we would not leave it as an idea to pass away, but that it would take root in our lives. And that we would see that you are the God who is willing to do all that for us. So our right response is to render ourselves to you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name.
Amen.